Good morning, Church of the Beloved. Hope you guys had a great week. Uh, my week last Sunday kind of started. One of the first things I did after church service is that uh, uh, Apollos and I actually went out and we grabbed lunch. And for those of you who don't know who Apollos is, he's a high school student who attends our church. But we started to talk and, you know, get to know each other better. And him being a high school student, um, my questions I asked him were, what are some of the books that you're reading in high school right now? What are the books that are impacting you or are your favorite books to read. So we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, Thoreau's Walden. Uh, that book is kind of boring. Um, but eventually we got to um, Ralph Waldo Emerson's uh, Self-Reliance. And, um, and uh, it, it brought up this story for me when I was in high school because when I was a high school senior, I was in this uh, advanced placement literature class. And, um, you know, for one reason or another, I showed up to class one day, I hadn't done the reading, and it turned out that we had this kind of pop quiz essay that we had to write on um, the reading that day. And so, um, you know, I was kind of stuck in between a rock and a hard place. So I decided, I think it was Carl Jung's uh, Modern Man in Search of a Soul. I hadn't read it at all. I didn't know what it was about. So I decided to just write this essay based around one word in the title, modern. And I just wrote this, this essay talking about what it means to be modern, what it means not to be modern, just making up stuff as I went along and I turned it in. And my teacher read it and she obviously gave me a very, very bad grade. And she had all these comments like, what are you talking about? Like, this is so confusing. You know, I don't understand this. And so she actually invited me to write a response to her critical comments. And so what I did was I actually quoted Emerson. And Emerson writes in Self-Reliance, Oh, so you shall be sure to be misunderstood. Is it so bad then to be misunderstood? Pythagoras was misunderstood. And Socrates and Jesus and Luther and Copernicus and Galileo and Newton and every pure and wise spirit that ever took flesh. To be great is to be misunderstood. (laughs) And so I kind of suggested to her, it's like, you are just, so far behind my understanding of this article, you just can't grasp the greatness or the innovativeness of my thought. I'm so great that you can't understand me. And she was really great. She was, she was really great. She wrote back something like this to me. It's true. Emerson said to be great is to be misunderstood. But he did not say that being misunderstood means that you are great. You could just simply be misunderstood, and that is what I think you are. (laughs) So to come back to Emerson's idea, to be great is to be misunderstood. What he's saying, if you're Pythagoras or Socrates or Copernicus or Galileo, then you're likely to be misunderstood in your time. Like we see it, it's like a pattern if you look at the history of this world. If you're so ahead of your time, if you're such a genius, if you're such an innovator and your thoughts are so creative that people, it's likely that the people, that the masses just won't understand you, they won't appreciate you, they won't be able to see what you see, and they'll likely misunderstand you, fear you, criticize or reject you. But I actually bet, I actually bet that all those great minds wish that they were understood. I bet that Socrates, he probably, wanted to be he probably wanted to be understood. He probably didn't think he was guilty of crimes against the youth or whatever. He probably would have rather passed on that glass of hemlock. 
And you can look at it, uh, you know, Copernicus and Galileo, they probably just wanted people to see what they saw, to understand that the planets orbited around the sun and not the other way around. Luther, Newton, even Jesus, I think as great as they were, as misunderstood as they were, I think they wanted to be understood. That's why they wrote so much. That's why they tried to explain what they saw. Like if Jesus really didn't want to be misunderstood, then we'd see in the book of Mark, he'd come on the scene, he'd declare that he's bringing this new kingdom, and he would start to do all these crazy things, like challenge the idea of fasting, like we talked about last week. Or he would start to for, uh, 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 heal people and say that he has the authority to forgive people's sins. And people would ask these questions. He would give no explanation or help them in no way understand what he was doing. But he's not. He's always talking with people and trying to explain himself to them. So to be great is to be misunderstood, but it doesn't necessarily feel that great to be misunderstood. Or to put it another way, all of us want to be understood. We all want to be accepted. We all want to be known. We all want to, none of us wants to be misunderstood. You know, a few weeks ago or a month ago, David O'Toole preached a sermon about identity. I think it relates. He came up with this definition, identity is a collection of beliefs and or characteristics that one perceives as important to their expression as an individual. I actually Googled it. He actually did make that, he actually did come up with that himself. And the idea is that what we say or what we do, the decisions or the choices that we make are part of how we want to be understood in this world. It influences what we choose to study. It influences the jobs that we seek after. It determines what you post on Instagram. But I would suggest that that definition is incomplete because it's not just your beliefs or your characteristics that make you who you are. That's not all there is to your identity, it's also your friendships and your relationships, your family, how you relate to those people who are close to you. John Donne, the English uh, poet, wrote this, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, continent a part of the main. And what Don is doing is exploring this idea that our identity is not just who we are in isolation, but there's also this factor of our connectedness to the people around us. People are not isolated islands. We're all part of this larger thing. So I would ask you guys this question then. What makes you, you? Mark 3 tells us that who we are into, in relation to other people is really important. I would suggest what he's bringing up is our fundamental identity is this. Who are we to Jesus? Who are we to Jesus? You know, for, to kind of catch everybody up, we'll give a brief context of what, what we're looking at in the book of Mark. Book of Mark, Jesus comes on the scene again. He announces that, he's, that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's something new that's happening here. There's something changing. There's something, nothing is going to be quite the same as it was before. God has come and he's establishing something new. And you look through chapter 2 and he's starting to make these pretty bold claims about himself. He says one, he's the son of man. He says he's the son of man. And if you look back at Daniel 7, the son of man is this divine figure from heaven who comes to judge and cleanse the earth at the end of time and reign over the earth. 
Jesus says that I'm the son of man. He also says that he has the authority to forgive all sins. Right? He, he heals a paralyzed man and he says your sins are forgiven. And people are, how dare he say that he has the authority to forgive all sins? Only God can do that. And what he's saying by, by saying that he has the authority of, to forgive all sins is that effectively every sin at its root, at its core, is actually against him. It's against him. Last week we talked about how he says that he's the bridegroom. That he himself is God, not just come as a king, not just as a shepherd, not just as a teacher, but actually he comes as a bridegroom. That he's God come to marry his people. And he also says that he's Lord of the Sabbath, that he's the author of the Sabbath. And if you look if you think about it, the Sabbath was what? Established in the book of Genesis at creation. It happened at the beginning of time. So he's saying, I've existed since the beginning of time. And I want to ask you guys, how would you respond to these claims if it was somebody that you knew that was making these claims about themselves? If you're hanging out with your friend or your coworker, and they're like, hey, just so you know that uh, I've been around since the beginning of time. Or what if they said that they created the world? What if they said that they were never going to die? What if they said that at the end of time they're going to come back and your eternal destiny is based on your relationship with them? You'd say that they were crazy. You'd say that they lost it or you'd say that they were evil or twisted or trying to manipulate people. And in today's passage, we see that's how two groups who spent a lot of time with Jesus during his time on earth made sense of him. The people closest to Jesus in today's passage are responding to his teachings and his claims the same way that you and I would. See, Jesus' family, they've traveled about 25 miles from Nazareth to Capernaum. And they've probably had this family meeting and determined that Jesus is just straight out of his mind and they've come to take him home. And we also see this group of religious leaders from Jerusalem. They've traveled 100 miles to put Jesus under investigation. And it seems that they've come to the conclusion that he's uh, in sorts with demonic powers. And so the question then becomes, why did the two groups that should have had the best understanding of Jesus, his family and the most religious people, why did they misunderstand him so much? And why did the people who were in the most need of healing and forgiveness, the weak and the poor, the lowest of the low, why did they seem to understand him so well? And those are some questions that I think the Gospel of Mark wants us to ask. But I think he also wants to ask those questions of us. You see, the, the, the spotlight of the Gospel of Mark is so often on Jesus, and that makes sense. But in this passage, I think, effectively, he turns the spotlight onto us. And he's saying, you've seen what Jesus taught. You have read what Jesus proclaimed about himself. And the questions for everyone in this room is then, how do you make sense of Jesus? Who are you in relation to Jesus? And we'll try to answer these questions by answering these three other questions. Uh, the first is, who is Jesus to us? Are we devout but distant? The second is, who is Jesus to us? Are we close but controlling? 
And the last is, who are we to Jesus? Are we family or are we not? The first point is, who is Jesus to us? Are we devout but distant? So you have these religious leaders. We're going to talk about them at first, right? And a lot of times I think they get a bad rap. We kind of turn them into these uh, two-dimensional villains and they're just like, uh, we kind of scapegoat them and we, we make them into uh, these evil guys, and, and it's a very simplistic way of looking at it. But if you think about it, right, in other translations, instead of this word scribes, it says that they are the teachers of the what? The law. They're the teachers of the law. These people know the word of God better than anybody else. They love the law. They've memorized the law. They've studied it. They've devoted themselves to it. They're passionate about it. And you have to think about what's going on in the context historically, Right? Most of us know that at the time of Jesus' life, Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire. And Israel, who are called to be a people set apart, who are called to worship but just one God, during this time of Roman occupation, the temptation is to compromise, to give in, and to worship all these foreign gods. The danger is that the worship from God's people is going to become contaminated. So you get these teachers of the law, right? Whose job is to keep this worship pure, to keep these people observing and obeying the law, even if it means being really, really strict about it. It's their job to keep people right as they wait for this Messiah, as they wait for God to deliver them. And then you get Jesus showing up, and he doesn't look like the Messiah that they were expecting at all. He wanted a Messiah who came in strength and worldly power and delivered the good and moral and faithful people over the wicked and pagan people. That's what they wanted. But instead, they get a Jesus who comes as a Messiah who comes in weakness and suffering and delivers outsiders and people who admit their sin over the proud and self-sufficient and self-righteous people. They wanted Jesus to bring a kingdom that rewarded their faithfulness and their hard work. Instead, Jesus brings a kingdom that is completely based on grace and mercy. Encounter after encounter, you see it through these passages that we've just studied. The tensions rise, the frustration rises, and these religious leaders, this religious establishment is so angry and frustrated with Jesus that it says earlier in chapter 3 that they're starting to plot to kill him, to destroy him. And my question to you is, can you relate? Can you relate? Have you ever had your hopes set on something? Have you ever had such high expectations for something, but then what you end up getting so far, is, is so far beneath your expectations that you just get, you feel betrayed. You feel angry. You feel frustrated and confused. You know, I asked Apollo so I could share this, but I was talking to him about, about what he was, what's been going on in his life, and he told me that uh, he had um, he had done the pre-ask uh, for homecoming. And I was like, "What is that?" And I guess what it is is that nowadays, you know, young people in high school, uh, they kind of do this pre-ask, where they'll go up to somebody that they want to take to a dance, and they'll kind of gauge their interest privately. And just to make sure that they want to go to this dance with them. You know, basically, not in such a lame way, but would you accept this invitation if offered to you? Right? And then based on that, if the person says yes, then they do the bigger ask. Then they make a big poster, they bring flowers, or they ask in front of their friends. 
Because they just, you know, they, they want to guard against rejection. They want to have this understanding in place. Makes sense, right? But how, how upset would he be if he, if he did the pre-ask? He's like, hey, do you want to go to the homecoming with me? And she said yes. Only to make a poster or to do some big display in front of all his friends and the cafeteria or something. And then for her to say no. Like, wouldn't you be angry? I would be angry. I'd be like, that's messed up, bro. That's, that's really, really bad. Because you have this expectation that you have this understanding that what you are doing is going to be received by this other person. And when it's not, you feel betrayed, you feel ripped off, you get angry and you get frustrated. Or I think back at the time uh, before, my, before I got married, um, you know, for those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not actually a, a naturally gifted dancer. I know, I know it's a big shock. And so I was telling my wife, Dora, I was like, wouldn't it be a good idea if we just went and took some, some basic, um, kind of like a hip-hop dance class, but just like, just so like when I'm out there dancing, I don't look like a fool. I just need to know basically what to do with my hands. And so Dury, like, one day she picked me up from work. She's like, I got a surprise. She had, like, some uh, active clothes for me to change into. And then she's like, oh, we're going to go do this dance class today. I was like, okay, okay great. Again, I thought it was going to be very, very instructional. Uh, but instead, she signed us up for a hip-hop dance class at the Hubbard Street Dance. And it wasn't like, oh, these are the kind of movements that you do. It was like, here's a whole routine that we're going to choreograph to one song. And like the level of the people was, uh, was, was really, really advanced. So I'm sitting in the back row and um, I'm trying, you know, I, I sat in the back row so nobody could see me. And uh, there's one point where um, he's like, okay, on the count of eight, I want you to strike a pose. And I was like, what am I going to do? You know, so I was like, okay, on the count of eight, I'm just going to do whatever this person does right in front of me. And uh, so they count to eight, and it's this woman, and she just strikes this very, I would say, feminine pose. I was like, okay, I can't do that. And so the instructor's like, let's try that again. And on the count of eight, strike a pose. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. So there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And I swear, I go like this. <laughs> it's the only thing I could think of doing. And the instructor's looking out at everybody, and he says, okay, we're going to do that one more time. Whatever you do, just don't do this. And afterwards, I was so upset because it wasn't what I thought I had asked for. Like, I wanted something that was very basic that would help me look like not a fool. And so I got the opposite. I looked like the biggest fool in there. And my embarrassment, the failure to meet my expectations, I, I mean, Dur I talked to Dury about this morning, she doesn't remember, but I was really angry at her. And so when this happens, I think all of us can relate when, we, when our expectations aren't met, when we don't get what we're expecting, a lot of times we'll act out in anger. And that's what we see in today's passage. It says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And what they're basically saying is this dude is from Satan. And they're looking at Jesus and they're thinking, on the one hand, he, he heals people and he casts out demons, but on the other hand, he turns everything that we knew about God and expected in the Messiah upside down, and so they accuse Jesus. Basically, the worst thing you can say about him is that he's from Satan. And so Jesus calls these religious leaders over to him, and he basically says two things to him. The first is, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. 
And you can see in the passage, but I'll just kind of paraphrase, with just a little bit of thought, Jesus is saying, you, you'd see that your assessment of me is totally off and that's totally illogical if you just spent a little bit of time and you thought about it. I'm not putting demons into people, I'm pulling them out. I'm, I'm rescuing people from demonic, satanic control. And he's, what he's saying is you're, you're, you're getting your emotions Get the best of you. You're letting it cloud your judgment. You're not even making sense. These religious, religious leaders are so set against them that they ignore the illogical, the logical, and, 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 and they discount the obvious. And the second thing that Jesus says, right, first thing is, like, hey, you guys just aren't making sense. That doesn't make sense. The second thing Jesus says to these people is this. What you're doing is incredibly dangerous. What you're doing is incredibly dangerous. I'll read this from the text, verse 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So once if Jesus is saying to them, look, I, I, I know I'm, I'm not what you expected, right? I know I'm turning everything you expected upside down. I know you're angry and you feel hurt and betrayed. But, but at the same time, he's like, I got to warn you. And I think this is one of the scariest warnings in, 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 in all the scriptures. What you're doing is really, really dangerous, Jesus says. Okay, so let's look at this passage, this part of the passage. Let's remember that in verse 28, this is what we got to kind of ground this in, is that Jesus is basically saying that there is no sin per se that can not be forgiven, okay? So don't jump to verse 28, or 29, look at verse 28. Jesus says people can be forgiven all their sins and even and every slander they utter, basically. He does not say people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter except for this one. It's just not there. This means that there's no specific sin that in and of itself is unforgivable. When we think about slandering or blaspheming the Holy Spirit, we should not imagine Jesus is talking about some sin that's outside the realm of God's mercy. That kind of sin does not exist. But what Jesus is saying in verse 29 is that if you refuse to believe in the gospel, if you stubbornly reject the most basic work of the Holy Spirit, then there's no pathway for you to forgiveness. Right? If you believe in the gospel, any sin, no matter how heinous it is, it is forgivable in Christ. But if you don't believe in the gospel, then no sin is forgivable. If you repent, any and all sins will be forgiven. But if you don't repent, there's no forgiveness for anything. A lack of, a lack of repentance or, or spiritual pride, it's the only sin that, is really, that, that really makes you unsavable. If you refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit's testimony to the truth of the gospel, then there really is no hope for you. That's what Jesus is saying. And the question then becomes, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? I think it could mean a couple things. Perhaps you're here today and you actually agree with what these teachers of the law and these scribes are saying about Jesus. Maybe you think that Jesus is evil, that he's oppressive, that he's restrictive to the point that you would actually agree and say that he's satanic. 
And if you're here, and you're like, I, I, I don't even want to argue with you. I just want to t- tell you that's a very, very dangerous place to be. The first thing I want to say is that it's illogical. Same thing that Jesus said to these teachers of the law. And I really would challenge you. Like, uh, we, we have these scripture journals as we go through the book of Mark. You know, go uh, to the lunch line and pick one up today. And just look at what Mark writes about this person of Jesus. Actually look at the Jesus that you find in the scriptures. A Jesus who cares about the oppressed. The Jesus who maintains relationships or initiates relationships with the social outcasts. You'll find a Jesus who was inclusive when it wasn't popular to be that way. You'll find a Jesus who is perfectly loving and gentle, even when it's very costly to him. And so I would just challenge you, just actually go to the scriptures and look at Jesus himself, and you'll see, if you look at it in any kind of unbiased and logical or reasonable way, that, that Jesus is a, that there's no way you could say that Jesus is evil. Or perhaps you're here today and you ask this question, Am I devout but distant, like the Pharisees? Do I know a lot about Jesus, but am I distant? And, 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 and you could find yourself in this way because perhaps you find Christianity in some way in, intellectually stimulating. Or maybe there's something about the gospel message that makes you feel good about yourself. The idea that God could love you the way you are makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside. There could be a number of reasons why you find Christianity to be compelling. Uh, And and maybe that's why you're here today. And maybe that's why you're active in this church. And maybe that's why you study the word or you pray. Maybe that's why you call yourself a Christian. But the warning that we see in this passage is that you can be devout but distant. And the way that you can tell if that's how you are is by answering this. When things don't go well in, in your life, when things don't go your way, how do you respond? How do you respond? When you don't get what you want out of, his, out of this life, do your walls immediately go up? Are you quick to blame or to get angry or to put in distance between you and God? Because today's passage is not the only time that Jesus addresses this concern. If you look at uh, John chapter 10, it writes, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to him. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When things in your life don't go according to your plan, when you don't get what you expect, when you're disappointed or confused or hurt or angry, Jesus is saying, remember that I am the good shepherd. I've come so that you could have a better life, an abundant life. In other translations, it said so that you could have life to the full. I want it so much for you. I love you so dearly that I will lay down my life for it. And he's saying, don't get this mixed up. Don't get this twisted. I didn't come to steal your joy or kill your dreams or destroy your hope. That's the thief. That's Satan. 
That's not me. I'm the good shepherd. Stop treating me like the thief. And I bring this up because I'm sure in a room like today, there are ways that people are hurt. There are people who are going through seasons of confusion, who don't really understand what's going on in their lives right now. And I bring this up because the scriptures are telling us in regards to how we relate to Jesus, they're telling us that you can be devout and hurt. You can be devout and confused. You can be devout and heartbreaking, but we must not be devout and distant. Bring your hurt. Come in your confusion, brokenhearted as you may be. Come as you are, but still come to the one who will receive you, Jesus himself. Stop treating him like the thief. Repent and draw close to him because he is the good shepherd. Let's not be devout and distant. The second question is, who is Jesus to us? Are we close but controlling? Are we close but controlling? You have this passage where, uh, where Jesus' family comes down and they, have this, they, they, they want to have this confrontation with him. And, and you have to understand like, what the family structure was during that time. No matter how close you are to your family, a Jewish family in the first century was probably closer. N.T. Wright, Wright, Wright says this, uh, the family bond was tight and long-lasting. As with many non-Western cultures today, it was normal for children to live close to their parents, maybe even the same house. The family unit would often be a business unit as well, sharing everything in common. What's more, for Jews, the close family bond was part of God's given fabric of thinking and living. Loyal to the family, loyalty to the family was the uh, local and specific outwork, outworking of loyalty to Israel as the people of God. Break that link and you've undermined a major pillar in the way Jews in the first century think and feel about the world and themselves. And, and basically what there's, he's saying is that family back then was different than it is now. You didn't get to pick and choose your family. You didn't get to apply to schools that were far away from home. You didn't get to move cities to put some distance between you and your family. Your family was your family and you didn't get to choose. And to kind of dive more into the context of this passage. This is probably a year or two into Jesus' ministry, okay? And at this point, he's healed so many people and he's casted out so many demons that now he has this reputation and the crowd starts to follow him around. Anyone who had a disease of any kind was coming to Jesus and they were pushing and they were shoving for the chance that they could just touch this man and to be healed. And earlier in this chapter, Mark tells us that the crowd swelled so much, the crowds got to be so unruly, they were so pushy, that they actually thought that they might crush Jesus himself. And if Jesus was your brother and you saw this happening to him, how would you respond? His physical safety is actually at risk. At the same time, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious establishment, the experts, they're pretty public in opposing Jesus and his claims. The experts have accused Jesus of blasphemy. They've questioned the integrity of his leadership when it comes to spiritual disciplines. They've even charged that Jesus was satanic. I don't know, maybe the family did hear rumblings or rumors that they were plotting to kill him. But if you're a parent here today, how would you respond if Jesus was your son? And all the experts and all the people who had all the right answers were saying this guy is crazy or maybe even evil. In verse 20, I think we find the final straw. It says, 
Because if if the threats to his own safety weren't enough, if the public criticism from the religious experts were enough, we see what might have finally convinced Jesus' family to make the trip and to convince Jesus to put an end to all this. In verse 20 it says, Then he went home and the crowds gathered again so that he could not even eat. And if you're part of a Jewish or Asian or many other cultures family, that might be the final straw. Forget, your, forget the public criticism and the, and the threats to your public safety. My son is not eating. It's time to bring him home. The people closest to Jesus, his, his, his family and friends, right? they want to take Jesus, they want to grab hold of him, and they want to silence him because they think it's what's best for him and they want to silence him until everything can blow over And these people, these people are close, but they're controlling. They're close, but they're controlling. They have this relationship with Jesus. They definitely care about him on some level, but they also don't trust him enough, and they seek to control him. Do you know anybody like that? Do you know anybody who's close to you, but they're controlling? Do you know someone that you you trust that that might manipulate you? It's 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 a horrible thing to have that intimacy, but to be controlled. But could we be the same way with Jesus? Could we be close but controlling? We're close because we sing songs and we listen to him speak through the word and we hang around church. We're close, but at the same time, we want to control him. As much as we love him, there are things that he says or does that we would just rather, we would just prefer if he hadn't said that. And in that way, we really are the same that we want to take hold of him to silence him. Some of these things might be what Jesus says about hell or morality or sexuality or marriage. And we might think, those things that Jesus says, those things are crazy. Those things are antiquated. I don't want to, I wish Jesus hadn't said that. I like what he teaches about love and forgiveness, but I, I don't love what he teaches about being the only way to heaven. And so we control Jesus in the ways that we don't talk about these things, the ways that we're embarrassed, the and there's that temptation to control him. And if we try to have Jesus on our own terms, if we try to tone down what Jesus actually said, then we, then we need to repent and humbly listen to him and obey what he says in its, entirety, in its entirety, come what may. Is that okay? Is that okay? As an elder of this church, I want to promise to you, like the people in this church, that I'll do my best to actually talk about what Jesus says. Even the parts of it that might put us in the hot seat. Even the parts of it that might make some visitors think that we're simple or unsophisticated. And will we as a people do this? Will we read the word of God with an understanding that God actually said those things and he meant it? And will we pledge to live our lives accordingly? Will we stop picking and choosing and manipulating the word of God? Will we stop being close but controlling? And the last point is, who are we to Jesus? Are we family or are we not? Who are we to Jesus? Are we family or are we not? So, so, so they come to grab hold of him, and the next thing you see in this passage, there's a lot going on here. The, these people, again, who are closest to Jesus, they've come to help him and to protect him, but when they arrive, what do they find? The crowds are so large that they can't even get close to Jesus. The house is full, there's a crowd surrounding the house, and they're on the outskirts. So what do they do? 
They try to get word to Jesus. They start to tell somebody, hey, can you let them know that, let Jesus know that his family is outside? Your family, your mother, your brothers are outside. Come to us. And what is Jesus' response? Basically, what family? My family is already in with, inside with me now. And can you imagine for a second how crushed Jesus' family must have felt? They must have thought, Jesus, did you forget the fourth commandment about honoring your father and mother? Think about Mary, his own mother. How crushing for his mother to hear those words from Jesus. Could she believe that her gentle and loving son would have ever said something like that? Had she ever been so hurt in her whole life? And to make matters worse, Jesus didn't even come outside and say it to them directly. They had to hear it from some stranger. His family had come to help him, and this, is a, this seems, at least on face value, some very, very deep rejection that they suffer for their troubles. Now, I, I want to challenge that reading, that understanding of this passage, because we know that no one loved his mother more than the Lord Jesus, right? He never severed family ties. He, never, he, 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 he did not live the rest of his life just ignoring his family. In the final hours of his life, as he hung on agony on the cross, he thought of his mother and spoke to her from the cross. Here is your son, mother, he said, referring to John. And to John, he commended his mother. Later, you'll see again, that uh, James, his brother, is, is head of the Jerusalem church. And also after the ascension, Jesus' mothers are where? They're waiting in the upper room, praying and waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit to descend upon them. So what? So that they could be witnesses to him. So Jesus and his family were, so, were still close. So, so what's going on here? In one way, Jesus is addressing his old family. And Jesus is saying these words to them at this time, and he's saying to them basically that he can't just be their dear older brother or their loving son anymore. It's not enough to have been, if you want a relationship with Jesus, it's not enough to be his mother or his brother. And he's also saying that it's not enough to have seen angels because Mary had seen them. It's not enough to be the beneficiary of one of the greatest miracles because Mary had done that. It's not enough to have been in Jesus' presence, seeing and hearing him in all his incarnate uh, perfection for 30 years. His brothers had also had that. These were great privileges, no doubt, but the relationship with Jesus could no longer just be based on these privileges. Jesus had come to become their Savior and their God and Lord. And if they didn't accept him as such, then they would be lost. So he's addressing his old family in that way. And the second thing he's doing is he's, he's establishing his new family. He's establishing his new family. What does Jesus ask for us in order that we may be intimately related to him? What is required of us to be part of God's new family? Well, you look at the people who are around him, and it's a good question to ask, because these people, they weren't an impressive group, right? It's the same crowd that had gathered around him for the healings and stuff. It's people who hadn't memorized the scriptures in anticipation for him. Those people were on the outside. It's people who hadn't spent 
a lifetime getting to know him and spending that time with him. Those people are on the outside of the house. These people who are gathered around him are not very morally upright people. These are not even people who have known him very long again. These people who Jesus is addressing and his mother and his brothers, who Jesus is saying is, are my new family, they have very, very little claim to that relationship with him. So Jesus continues by exclaiming, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It's based on doing the will of God. And for all of us, if you just read it for what it is, you'll realize that the invitation is not for you. I mean, it's great that Jesus doesn't play favorites. You don't have to be the religious elite or to be in his biological family to be in intimate relationship with him. That's great news. But if the requirement to be in Jesus' family is to do the will of God, then that bar is impossibly high. Because aren't we like the teachers of Allah and when we oppose him, when we distrust him, when things in our life don't go according to our way, that we act out in anger towards him? Aren't we just like that when we might be devout but we're distant? And aren't we just like his family members that when Jesus says or does things that don't mesh with what we want him to do or say, we immediately try to seize him and control him? If the requirement to be included in the family of God is to do the will of God even halfway well, not to mention perfectly, then the teachers of the law, his own family, and certainly people like you and me were out. But then you remember that Jesus healed a man with leprosy. And he healed a man who was paralyzed. And he didn't just heal him of his paralysis, but he told him that his sins are forgiven. And you remember that Jesus is not only the man who called a tax collector to be his disciple, but actually accepted his invitation to dine with him and his other sinner friends in his home. Jesus is the man who seems to find more joy in people than he does in religious ordinance like fasting and Sabbath-keeping. And you realize that a lot of these people, these outcasts, the lowest of the low, the least amongst them, the unclean, the sinful, are probably the same people who are in this house crowding Jesus a little bit, relating to him a way in which Jesus is saying that they are his family. How can this be? How can these people in the house actually do his will? What if doing the will of God is not so much about fasting and Sabbath-keeping, memorizing the word, praying, giving to the poor, at least primarily? And what if doing the will of God is simply being saved by him? I'll go back to verse 27. It says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. See, people who are locked up, tied up, captives of an evil man, a strong man. They don't bring their preconceived notions or their entitlement and apply it to the way in which they are saved. They surrender all in trust. They submit. They, sur- they simply let themselves be saved. I'll ask them to put up this photo. But it was on a trip that my family took to China a few years ago. And uh, this is like one of the lifts up to the Great Wall. And, um, you know, my background is Chinese, but I, I speak Chinese very, very poorly. Um, I'm, I'm fluent in, in restaurants, but that's about it. 
And so it was me, my wife, Jerry's Korean, she doesn't speak Chinese, about as well as I do, actually, but my young son, Isaiah, and we walk up to this lift, and they're like shouting instructions at me, but I don't really understand. I look Chinese, but they don't understand that I might as well just not, you know, whatever. Like, uh, and so they push us kind of onto this lift to bring us to the top of, the, uh, of like a, a mountain kind of, and we just kind of hop on stupidly, and we're just off. And what we realized kind of right when we kind of left the ground is, if you can show the second photo, if you look, I didn't realize that you were supposed to actually stand or put your feet and push down on that bottom bar, and that's actually what closes it. So this is actually completely open and free, and Isaiah is actually on my lap, unsecure, and just dangling over these big ravines and gorges as we go over them. You'll also notice, if you can see the, I mean, this is weird that we're so focused on my legs, but if you see, like, I was so in such a rush that I actually didn't even sit back in the chair. I'm actually kind of leaning towards the forward, so my legs are slow, slanted down. So to make a bad situation even worse, like, my leg is basically a giant slide, and the only thing holding him is my arm. And, you know, it's not a long ride. It's probably five minutes, but it's, it's very, very dangerous. And I basically said to Jesus, not Jesus, I basically said to Isaiah, Isaiah, don't move a muscle. Don't say anything. Don't do anything, but just be still. And let me see if I'm strong enough to hold you all this way. I curse myself for not doing more bicep curls, but I was like, just, let's just see if we get through this together. And I bring this up because Isaiah didn't need to do anything. He didn't need to offer any help. All he needed, was to, do, all he needed to do was just to simply stay st still, stay close to me, and just let me save him. I bring this up because Jesus invites you and me to do the same. We're like a little child dangling over a great depth. He's the stronger man who will set us free from the imprisonment of the evil one. And there's nothing that we can do to help. Jesus primarily did not come to teach you how to fend for yourself or how to get yourself out of trouble. He did not come to instruct us on how to be more godly or more spiritually or, or at least to seem that way. He didn't come primarily as a teacher or an instructor, but as a savior. And what I'm saying to you is our relationship with Jesus is a rescue operation. It's not a self-help class. We need him to forgive us for not doing God's will perfectly. We need him to save us from our sins and from ourselves. We need him to go where he's going to go and to die on the cross so that we can be part of God's family. One of the things about today's passage is when you first read it, you think he's kind of demoting his family. Those people are not my family. That's a very, very sad way of reading it. But that's really not what's happening. What's happening is Jesus is really elevating everybody else. Jesus is saying that there is now this special relationship that we can have with Jesus when we realize that we are not special or entitled, when we realize that we have no claims to him and that our relationship with him is based on his claims on us. When we realize that we are 
the prisoners in the strong man's house, and he's the one who has come to set us free. We realize that we are in need of salvation and we simply need to allow Jesus to be our Savior. That is when we will best understand who Jesus is and who we are in relation to him. You see, if we want to understand Jesus, the question is not so much who is Jesus to us. If it were, we could be devout but distant. We could be close but controlling. But if we really want to understand Jesus, the better question is who are we to him? Jesus says in John 10 that we are the sheep and that he is the good shepherd who's come down to lay down his life so that we could have life and have it to the full. Jesus says that we are the prisoners tied up and imprisoned by the strong evil man, but he himself is the stronger man who has come to plunder his house. And Jesus says that he is God himself providing a way so that, we, so that he can welcome us, welcome us into a relationship that is so close and intimate that it can only be called family. Let's pray.